Open your Bibles this fine resurrection morning to Luke and his gospel, chapter 24. Luke 24 for our consideration this morning. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and also the other women were with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Lord Jesus, we... This morning, stand, not physically, not literally, before a hole in a rock, but we do stand literally before that same truth. Just as true today as it was then, still tempted in the same way today that those Disciples were then, and that is to be guilty of the sin of unbelief. Oh, Father, by your Spirit this morning, generate and create in us faith that believes what you've said, so that we might experience a life that is not rattled not without equilibrium, but one that is steadfast and solid, fixed in hope upon a risen Lord. We pray that we would, just as the disciples did, have their faith strengthened as a result of hearing your word this morning. We pray this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. As we think about Christianity, there are several things that make our faith as Christians unique. The first of which is the fact that we have a God who has spoken to us. Not every faith can claim to have the direct revelation of God to them as we as believers have. Secondly, we have a trinity. God who is one and yet three, three and yet one. That sets us apart as unique among all the other faiths of the world. 
But lastly, and perhaps as a punctuation point upon the first two, is this, that we have a God who was dead and is yet alive again. No other faith claims to have a resurrected Savior, one who lived a sinless life for them and paid a penalty for them for which they could never have atoned themselves. And yet we do. And we're here not only this morning, but I would remind you all that we are here every Lord's Day morning because of the resurrection. Every Lord's Day is a celebration of Christ and his being raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And we're here this morning uniquely to focus upon that reality. And I want you to know one thing, and if you look at verse 6, and that will be the, the bulk of our consideration this morning. And there's a little phrase that is tucked away quite nicely within this verse, and as it occurs in other Gospels as well, but it is especially distinct, I think, in Luke 24. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you. That's, that's the challenge this morning for us to fall in line with that phrase. Remember what Jesus has said. He is risen because he said that he would rise. This is not an unexpected, isolated thing that has happened. Brother, Jesus has been talking about this for his entire ministry. It's been foreshadowed all the way back into the Old Testament. And because Jesus did rise, there could be the forgiveness of sin for all who hear and remember and believe. For all who repent of their sins and cast them upon Jesus, believing that he is God and that he is risen from the dead, there is forgiveness of our sins. Why? Because Jesus said that's the way it would be. That that's the way it would be. Go back to Matthew chapter 28. As Matthew recounts the same thing. Matthew's account reads this way again in verse 6. He is not here for he is risen just as he said. Just as he said, brothers and sisters, do you believe this morning that it is just as he said? As the Easter narrative unfolds, it is clear that this is the one needful thing for all of us. Just as the the angels challenged the disciples to remember. And to remember what Jesus said. And this morning, We need to do exactly that. We need to go back and remember what it is that Jesus says, what it is that is so important about this event. As Resurrection Sunday opens, we find this account unfolding before us in all the Gospels. We've read it this morning, and as William Hendrickson, the the New Testament commentator, said this, that these two women meant well, but were badly in error. They came to the tomb, they meant well, they meant to honor Jesus, they meant to do everything, but they were in gross error. And we might ask, why would such kind and tender-hearted and compassionate women be in such error? They meant well. 
They meant well. Well, here is why. They, they were badly in error because they came to anoint a corpse. And Jesus had said, I will not be a corpse. I will not suffer decay. I will rise on the third day. And so all the good intentions of the world do not make up for that mistaken error. They came expecting to find Jesus still dead. When Jesus had told them, I won't be there. Don't look for me there. I will rise again. They came. Think about the the absurdity that is not glossed over simply because of good intentions. They came to anoint an eternally living God for permanent burial. It can't happen. God is eternal. God is eternally living. God is life. You can't anoint God for death. And yet they forgot this all transpired for one simple reason. They forgot what he said. Now, again, it's tough to cast stones at these women because we, too, are guilty, aren't we, of the sin of forgetting what he said. By God's grace, I want us to be so enthralled with the truth of God's word this morning that that we leave a little stronger against the temptation to forget what he said. In reality, what Jesus said is what God had been saying since Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. When the first promise of the gospel came to Adam and Eve, Jesus is simply saying this, you are going to crush the head of the evil one. Of the enemy, of death, his most powerful weapon. God had promised that all the way back in Genesis. And Jesus has just continued to repeat what God has said. If we had eyes to see and eyes, again, not granted by human wisdom like these women. But eyes that are granted spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding, faith that is not our own but is given by God. Not by earthly learning, which seeks scientific rationale and reason. But faith given by the Spirit of God. What we would understand is this, that God has always been pointing us towards the resurrection by his revelation. So as you sit here this morning, on Resurrection Sunday morning, will you believe what he said? That nothing else about today matters and nothing about tomorrow will matter unless you believe what he said. Your life has no meaning. You have no hope of eternity unless you believe what he said. There's so much that we could say this morning. There's so many juicy details. There's so many things we could sink our teeth into around the resurrection. But it really boils down to this. Will you believe what he said? And because of, he, because of what he said, what he did. This is what we must believe. This is what must be remembered. And so I want to consider this morning, beginning here in Luke and in Matthew, three specific episodes throughout the ministry of Jesus where the disciples had been pointed to the resurrection 
and the summation of the reason why Jesus had come. And I want you to go back, if your finger is still in Matthew, go back to Matthew chapter 16, the first episode where the angels would have pointed these people to have understood where Jesus had said occurs at Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse 15, Jesus again is with the disciples in the area known as Caesarea Philippi. It is a, it is a, uh, a, a, a Greek-influenced area of Palestine with all of its foreign gods. Jesus is asking the question in the context of many gods, who do you say that I am? Verse 15. And Simon Peter answered, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now notice verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now notice Peter's response in verse 22. Peter took him aside, wise Peter, and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he turned to Peter and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter the wise is very quickly turned into Peter the foolish. In summary fashion, we have Peter demonstrating that, that no one can give all the right answers. I'm sorry, one can give all the right answers and still miss the point entirely. You see, Peter got it right. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That's the most important thing Peter could have said in that moment in response to Jesus' question. And yet, when Jesus gets to verse 21 and says, here's why I am here as the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter says, no. He passed the test, but failed in the end. Have you ever known anybody like that? They... They are an ace in school. They ace every test. They do their homework. But when it comes to applying that knowledge on the job, they're absolutely incapable. We say they're book smart but have no common sense. Peter's kind of that way. He's book smart, but he lacks the ability to apply what he's learned. He doesn't hear what Jesus says. And so he rebukes Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And Jesus points out to Peter, if you go back in that text, that it did not come from Peter's own intellect, from Peter's own 
study this truth can only be revealed to the mind and to the heart of man by God himself. It is the sovereign work of God to convince men and women, boys and girls, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And this morning we could also say that he is the risen Son of God. The Holy Spirit must do this work. And so Jesus commends the work of God in Peter to this end. Peter has proclaimed the work in seed fashion, but he would later deny it. Brothers and sisters, let us be warned and let us be careful this morning that we do not just in a very surface fashion confess some basic truths or even develop truths, but in the end with our lives deny its power. This is a serious lack on Peter's part. He is the Messiah. He, the word Messiah simply means the fulfiller of the Israelite expectation, the, the, the deliverer, the anointed one of God. And yet Peter here, when, when Jesus unfolds what that is about and Jesus unfolds the fullness that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would die, and that he would be raised again, Peter does something fundamentally dangerous. He denies revelation. He denies what Jesus says. By the way, isn't that what happened to mankind in the garden originally? We denied revelation. We denied what God said, which led to the the whole downfall of the entire human race. And so Peter can confess, you and I can confess certain things, but we are also very capable of denying revelation that is difficult, a revelation that is uncomfortable, revelation that doesn't seem to square with the scientific community. Peter does just that. He accepts some that is given to him by God, but there comes a point in which Peter says, no, I reject that revelation. Notice verse 21 in Matthew. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that. This is the the crux of what it is, the apex of God's revelation. Jesus begins something new here. There's a a shift in the text. This is a launching point for Jesus getting to the heart of his ministry. He's ramping up, if you will. The time for symbols and types is over. The Messiah has come. And Jesus reveals to these 12 men the reason for his coming. And yet the reason they fail and the reason they aren't there at the empty tomb as they should have been on Resurrection Sunday is they forgot what he had said. They rejected revelation. Something that they should not have done. The second episode occurs on a journey. Look in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, Jesus has really for the first time clearly revealed it there in Caesarea Philippi. And now they're on a journey to Jerusalem. They are preparing for the Lord's death. Luke 
Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus takes the twelve aside. Notice that just prior to that, Peter makes another confession. Behold, we have, in verse 28, we've left our homes. We followed you. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets. I love how both the crucifixion and the resurrection are filled and based upon the authority of previously revealed truth. This isn't some new thing, but to accomplish what was written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. What was it that would be accomplished? He will be handed over to the Gentiles and be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Clear revelation. Where did this revelation come from? From Jesus alone? No, from the prophets that these men knew so well. These are educated men in the Jewish context. They've heard the prophets. They know the prophets. They know the poets. They know the history. And yet they hear it and they, verse 34, the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. How dull. Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem now. It's getting closer to his death. And he says to them, it's in the prophets, guys. It's there for you to see. It's there for you to know. And that's why I've come. Here's the full understanding of my purpose and my mission. Revelation will yield to resurrection. Providing salvation. Notice how Jesus had framed his prophecy of resurrection. It is that which had been prophesied by the prophets. It is that which, for which the disciples had left their homes and their families. They had followed Jesus. And yet when it comes to the real moment of believing what God has revealed, they could not and did not. If you look at Psalm 2 and Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 foretells the resurrection In that after the Messiah suffered and died, he would live to see his offspring. He's not dead. He has died, but he's alive. And he sees the fruit of what his death and resurrection would bear. And he would justify or save from their sins many who believed. Jesus says, guys, it's in the prophets. You've read it. You've known this your entire life. And yet in spite of Jesus' words and his ministry, those who followed him were filled with fear. Fear that stems from unbelief. Why do we fear? Why do we lack hope? Fundamentally, because we don't believe. Or we failed to believe fully all that the scriptures say. 
Brothers and sisters, more than ever in our lifetimes, we have seen what fear does. We, we see an entire world that is so captivated and locked down by fear that they're willing to believe almost anything. Willing to do almost anything. Let us as Christians not be captivated by such fear, for we know the end of the story. There is no such thing as death, and the world around us so fears death. But do we believe? Because if we believe, we need not fear like that. Mark 10.32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, a corollary to the passage in Luke we just read. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. By the way, when you read the word amazed in the New Testament, that's not a good thing. Most of the time, that word amazed in the New Testament has to do with someone who is scandalized. The the Greek word literally means to be punched in the face, slapped silly. They're listening to Jesus, and they are scandalized. And because they are scandalized in their unbelief, they are fearful. Jesus says it again in Mark. They'll mock him, they'll spit on him, they'll scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And yet they remain scandalized. They remain in unbelief. How do we know? Well, you you see, for the disciples, for the 12, it's even worse than it was for the women. They didn't even bother leaving the house. They're in such a state, they're in hiding. They're afraid they're next. At least the women had the, the, the gumption and the courage to, uh, that was my grandmother's old word, gumption, uh, th- to get out and go. The men stay behind. The, the, they are terrified, scandalized. Their fear and their subsequent denial by their actions are all in spite of the fact that Jesus had been telling them over and over and over again, guys, listen, this is why I've come. This is why I've come. This is what God has been communicating throughout the history of the world and of revealed truth. There would be a Redeemer. I am He. Shortly after the passage in Mark, Jesus has to regress. They have to take remedial Doctrine 101. In Mark 10.45, just a few verses later, after they are scandalized, Jesus has to say this. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Just after our passage in Luke, in which we began on this point, Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Over and over again, we're told why he came. We are told how he will accomplish his mission. Our hope, their hope, salvation occurs just as he said. Now we could go back and we could further extrapolate what the the disciples are going through. 
They are men of their day. They are men of their time. They are men of their age. And so we must give them some leeway, I think, for what the understanding of the Messiah was. To the Jewish mind, as, as indicated by Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the people expected an earthly king, a conqueror, a Messiah, to deliver them from the oppression of their enemies, the Romans. Which, as I said, Friday night is, makes the, the grotesque request of the elders and the leaders even more exaggerated then we might understand it because the Romans came down heavy throughout history upon such claims of being a Messiah. There are multiple accounts where someone would rise up in Jerusalem and declare that they were the king of the Jews, that they were the Messiah, and that they were going to overthrow the Romans. And the Romans would come out of their fortress in Jerusalem and quell the riots. And so what are the leaders of Israel ask for at Jesus' trial before Pilate, give us the insurrectionist who will bring down the Romans upon our heads rather than this man who will save us from our sins. That's what rejection of revelation will get you. That kind of depraved thinking, that kind of rejecting of what God had been saying all along, Their only hope for salvation wasn't in a military conqueror. It was in the shed blood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There's a third episode. Go to Mark chapter 9. In Mark 9, we have the the beautiful story. This is repeated in other gospels, but I want to go to Mark There's an episode after the glorious transfiguration of Jesus. You remember the transfiguration? It's one of those events, I think, that if we all had to list, you know, Lord, if you could transport us back in time, we'd want to see this happen. I'd want to be at the transfiguration as one of those places. I'd want to see what these men saw. Jesus goes up to the mountain. He is communing with God power of God comes and it rests upon him. And in verse 9, let's back up to verse 5. Peter says to Jesus again, here's Peter, always confessing for the group. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, One for Elijah, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. The Son of God is radiant with the glory of God. It's radiating his glory. Verse 3 says, his garments become so white that no launderer on earth can, can create garments that white. He is radiant with the glory of God, with the holiness of God. Yeah, I'd be terrified too. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Accept revelation from him. 
Whatever He says, you must believe. You see, belief is not optional. Belief in Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God this morning, as the one raised from the dead, that is not optional. I am not inviting you to believe in Jesus. I am commanding you to believe in Jesus. Because that's what the Father does. That's what Jesus said. That's what John the Baptist said. That's what the prophets before him said. We must believe the revelation of God in Christ. And all at once, verse 8, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. All of a sudden, the, the episode is over. And as they were coming down from the mountain, so have that scene in your mind. They've just seen the glory of God as they've never experienced it before. In the middle of that, the core of that is that they should listen to Jesus, whom God has glorified before their eyes. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. There it is again. Hey guys, did you just hear my father thunder from heaven that you're to listen to me? What's the first thing Jesus says to them? He says, don't tell anyone until I'm raised from the dead. Of all the things Jesus could have said, of all the sermons Jesus could have preached, what does he seize upon and center his message in? His resurrection. Moving down through this chapter, verse 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Go on down to verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Again, not always a good thing. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. We've all been children. Some of us are parents of children. And we know what it is to tell them something. And they say, "Uh uh-huh. And you can tell, "Uh uh-huh, is just to get you to quit talking. And you repeat it again and repeat it again until you get down on eye level with them and you grab their sweet little cheeks and you look them in the eye and you tell them emphatically and ask them to repeat back to you what you've just said so that you know they really know this is what Jesus is doing. Let it sink into your ears. I don't know if you're dense or hard-hearted or what the problem is, but you're not getting it. I am going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the statement. Jesus
using even their depravity as part of his plan. Their fallenness as part of his plan. Prior to his resurrection and ascension, Jesus' most glorious moment had just been accomplished and seen on earth, a foretaste of all the glories of the Messiah that they had waited for. Don't you know, Peter and the other disciples, they're just waiting for the glowing sword to fall from heaven into Jesus' hands and say, Charge the Romans! This is it, man! But immediately on the heels again, they are marred in unbelief, marred in their own fallenness. As Jesus tries to communicate to them, guys, the thing I'm here for is not only to die, but to live, to be raised from the dead. Listen to me. Jesus, again, once again, is his, the glorious revelation of who Jesus is, is tied to the resurrection. Think about it, brothers and sisters. The the, the high points of Jesus' earthly ministry. Peter's confession that he is the Son of God. What a great sermon. Jesus on the road to Jerusalem to prove who he is. At the Mount of Transfiguration. The, the, The greatest moments in Jesus' life are all Tied to this one day, he will be raised from the dead. You think that's glorious? Wait until you see me rise from the dead. You think that was awesome? Wait until you see an empty tomb, guys. You ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus is preparing them. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 also pictures this revelation. And in verse 3, after his resurrection, Jesus has granted salvation through his victorious work over sin and death in the grave. And it is said that it's just as he said. Just as the prophets had foretold and foreshadowed. Brothers and sisters, we sit here this morning. With an opportunity fresh and new. Maybe for the first time for some of you. To approach the Lord Jesus Christ. And his empty tomb in faith. Not like the women. Well intentioned. But grossly misguided. To believe that he is God, to believe that he paid the price for sin, and to believe that he has been raised from the dead for your salvation. He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you? Remember what the word of God has been saying this entire time? As the angels speak to the women, they call on them to remember what Jesus said. And not just what he said, but why he said it. He would be raised for their salvation. For the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God for our salvation. The confession of faith that we read earlier this morning, that's not just something, oh, we, we, 
Yeah, every church has to have, I don't know where that is. I'm sure it's a law somewhere. Every church has to have a doctrinal statement. You'd be surprised how few churches do nowadays. It's not just something of formality that we have. It is the core of what we believe and what do we confess in that. On the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. A glorious resurrection, an atoning resurrection. Not just that he said it, but why he said it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God for salvation. How can you be saved? How can you be right with God? How can you know that your sins are forgiven and that you will not pay the price for those sins by your eternal death? By believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived, died, and was raised on this day for your sins. His empty tomb secures a full heaven. The tomb is empty so that heaven might be filled. Filled with the people of God who hear the word of God and believe the word of God in the person of Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. We must not be, we cannot be, as the women at the tomb, coming to anoint a corpse. One of the tests that students receive at the Master's Seminary is at some point to demonstrate their ability to communicate clearly the gospel. And by the way, the gospel is not complicated. It's really not. Paul says it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't he? I delivered to you that which I would say that according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the scripture. That is the gospel in a nutshell. We need not complicate it any further, but in order to pass the test, we must conclude with this, that he rose from the dead. It's not enough just to say that Jesus died. It's that he rose again as well. It's that he's living living as our intercessor, as the confession says. He stands before his Father on our behalf now. His blood pleads for our righteousness. Let the blood of Jesus speak for me. I have no righteousness of my own. You have no righteousness of your own. Let's not come to anoint a corpse. Let's come expecting an empty tomb. Rather than spices, they should have bought a broom to clean it out. But they didn't. How inappropriate unbelief. How inappropriate a lack of communicating the importance of the resurrection is. How inappropriate to saving faith it is to leave that detail Today is the day of resurrection. Today is the day of salvation. Will you hear and will you believe that he was raised from the dead so that you might be born again? Because it is just as he said. Just as he said. Just as the Father has always said. This would be his plan.
and it would be an unfailing plan. Jesus lives. I remember as a kid, one of my dad's favorite songs, I guess it was his favorite song because he sure sung it a lot. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the times I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. And that is why he lives. It's just as he said. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that you raised your son. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you took your life up again. We are thankful that as we pray right now, you are bodily ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is not mysticism. This is not fairy tale. You are bodily in heaven, bearing the scars of your crucifixion beside your Father. Standing in our place, covering us in your righteousness, because we have none of our own. And you are declaring that all who dwell in faith in who you are and what you accomplished are yours and they are yours forever, never to be lost. And we praise you for that. Lord Jesus, there may be someone here this morning who is not yet yours. Because rather than believe, they've been rebuking. Like Peter. They've scoffed at. They've seen no need for. They've tried to reason other ways of why this can't be true. And that there has to be other options for their salvation. Father, humble them. Lord Jesus, bring them to yourself today. This day of life, this day of resurrection from the dead. That they might know what life really is. Having placed their faith in you, their living Savior. Father, for those of us who do believe, may we leave more committed more joyful about sharing this good news, more eager to trace everything in our life back to this morning. That Christ is risen. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that you endured on the cross. Even prior to that, thank you for all that you endured in your life. Just coming to be born and take upon you our humanity, yet without sin, to suffer temptation, to suffer deprivation, to suffer ultimately death and take our sin where you had none to take so that you could bury it once and for all and be raised to life and in your resurrection, our resurrection. 
no longer chained to the bowels of this earth through sin and death, but raised to victorious life in Jesus. We thank you and we praise you for that. Grant us joy, exceeding joy today, as we reflect upon you and what you've done. We pray this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. You are our King. You are our blessed hope. Because of what you did today. Amen.